From out of the unknown comes a mysterious doom that strikes only at the girl members of the Legion of Superheroes. And when Supergirl leads the remaining Legionnaires in a fight to preserve their lives, she finds herself facing the most mysterious and mightiest foe of her career. Here is the saga of the Girl of Steel's struggle to save the Condemned Legionnaires. Satan Girl. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Supergirl Power Hour. As always, I am Corey, and with me is my hateful co-host, James. Burning hell, Corey. Exactly. This month, we are covering the Supergirl appearances from late 1963, except we are skipping Action Comics number 304 because of a scheduling mishap that will have it covered next month. Oh yeah, we got something very special planned for that story, so we wanted to save it for the opportune moment. Which leads us right into our first story, The Girl Who Hated Supergirl, uh, from Action Comics number 305, published October of 1963, written by Leo Dorfman, art by Jim Mooney, you know, our standard group at this point, and we open with Dick and Linda riding horses as they get ready to celebrate Supergirl Celebration Week in Midvale. When suddenly, Linda spies a woman in a canoe that's about to go perilously tumbling over a waterfall. I'll have to change to Supergirl to save her, but first I must get rid of Dick. <laughs> oh, shouldn't we all? So her trick is she decides that she will jump over a hedge maze with her horse, and she knows that Dick's horse won't be able to do it, but by using her own super strength, she she lifts her horse into the air. Which can't be comfortable for the horse. Right? And then we get the standard shirt rip just in time for the canoe to go over the waterfall, and as Supergirl saves the canoe, she gets swatted at by the girl with the oar, who is upset with Supergirl for trying to save her life. As we encounter in this story, Supergirl's greatest foe, Karen, the girl who doesn't think Supergirl is swell. And Supergirl has her feelings hurt and goes back to her boyfriend and then goes back home to her mom. And they head in to watch the Supergirl celebration. And Linda helps her mom parallel park the car. <laughs> And they go into the Midvale supermarket, which advertises that to celebrate Supergirl Week, they will give away a free statuette, there's an ellipsis there, of Supergirl with each $5 purchase and give the profits to Midvale Orphanage. Now, I really wonder what the over-under on these Supergirl statues is, because at $5 a pop, the Midvale Orphanage must be getting a profit of about one penny each, while the supermarket is just raking in the dough from all the extra attention this promotion must be giving them. Well, and... The thing is, what profits? Because it's free with a $5 purchase, so you're purchasing other things. <laughs> this is what Midvale gets for putting their trust in Luthor, Mart. <laughs> right? By the way, I just want to point out, 
my first thought on seeing those Supergirl statues was that I wanted one of my own. Right. Then I looked two inches to the left of my laptop and saw the nearly identical Supergirl statue I already own because I have a sickness. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, James. You turn around and I, your wall of Supergirl. He doesn't know what he's talking about, Care. Which wall? <laughs> I, I have multiple walls of Supergirl. Oh, God, it's spreading. <laughs> so, anyway... Um, we see Karen buying $5 worth of broccoli, apparently, and leaving her statuette behind because she does not want that Mexican-made garbage. <laughs> Looks like somebody's been spending a little time on the Red Sun subreddit. And Linda oversees Karen denying the statue and decides she has to figure out why this this high school girl has a grudge against her. So the the festivities kick off with a raffle for a free super flight through Midvale, where Supergirl cheats to make sure that it's Karen that is selected to win the free flight. And that makes Karen bolt. No, no, never. I'll have nothing to do with Supergirl. I'm getting out of here. Which is how I feel every time it comes up to editing one of these. <laughs> And as Supergirl chases after her, we get the thought balloon of, wonder what they'd say if they all knew that Karen hates me. Honey, I think they all know. She just screamed it out loud. <laughs> like, she couldn't make it any more obvious. I'll get Cousin Superman to come over here and erase their memories. Then we get the standard hazard of Midvale, which is shoddy guardrails. I'm convinced that Midvale is built on an incline, because everything seems to lean heavily to the left. Like Gravity is not in their favor in this town. And Karen's car goes tumbling over a cliff, and Supergirl uses her super breath to gently lower her to Earth, and once again, Karen gets really, really angry that Supergirl saved her life. And then we find out why. Her dad was an astronomer with a high-powered space telescope, and the day that Supergirl arrived on planet Earth, a flame hit the observatory and killed her dad and crippled her brother, and Karen has held a grudge for the last two years. I like how, if you really look at her cousin and his history of collateral damage, it does track. <laughs> but Supergirl tries to explain that she was actually piloting her rocket ship, and we get a, another origin story, so take a drink. Which has the absolute bottom of the editorial note barrel, which is an Ed note reminding us that Superman was also from Krypton and also came to Earth on a rocket. This comic felt the need to remind us that Superman exists. It's action comics! So we get a scene where Kara is taking manual control so that she doesn't damage anything and lands safely outside of town. And Karen doesn't believe it, so Supergirl's like, I can prove it, and flies her up to Antarctica and takes her to the Fortress of Solitude where she shows Karen the rocket that brought her to Earth. Using a chronoscope, a machine invented by Superman, which... <sighs> according to its description, can overtake light rays that left Earth years ago so that they can view the events of the past. How horrifying is that? 
I don't like Superman being able to see the breadth and width of all human experiences with his everything machine. And then we find out what actually caused the fire was a space bat from a distant nebula. Which looks nothing like a bat or even something from space. It looks like a trilobite. (laughs) And he attacked the observatory because the rays from the observatory annoyed him. So it turns out your parents were killed by a troll. How does that make you feel? And so Karen forgives Supergirl, and Supergirl rubs in that she shouldn't make rash judgments next time, and wraps her in her cape and flies her back to Midvale. (laughs) Which is the greatest token of affection a Kryptonian can give to an Earthling, wrapping them up in a corpse blanket and flying them through the frigid Arctic waste. So later on, we get Supergirl going to Washington to make sure that her father's work gets recognized and also that she arranged for Karen's brother to have famous surgeons work on him and he is no longer crippled. I'm so baffled by this one plot point. Like, did he just have a slip disc or something? No. Who are these magical miracle doctors that Supergirl is hoarding, apparently? But no, no, you have to troll Supergirl before she'll cure your family. So anyway, the story ends with Karen being good friends with Supergirl and an ad for Tootsie Roll Fudge. Hey. Which I really want to try, Tootsie Roll Fudge. I know. Just I know we've said this before, but if you... Like, if your grandparents owned a convenience store and you just have loads of this in a warehouse somewhere, <laughs> please send it to us. We don't care if it would kill us. We just we just want to look at it. We, we promise we won't eat it. Speak for yourself, James. I plan on eating it. Corey, no, you're colon. <laughs> that brings us to our next story, which is one of my favorite stories from the Silver Age. The Condemned Legionnaires from Adventure Comics number 313, also in, from October of 1963, written by Edmund Hamilton, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by George Klein and Sheldon Moldoff. And this is a Legion story. Now you can tell it's a different book because the lettering is completely different. And unfortunately, the lettering credits didn't survive through the last 60 years, so... But whoever did it, it's very easy to read, competent. I like how tightly packed the words are so you don't get a lot of uh, the word bubbles encroaching on the art. Solid job. We open with Lightning Lass turning red and fainting. And then moments later, Saturn Girl starts turning red and seems sick. And then Shrinking Violet suddenly gets dizzy and weak and starts turning red. And we cut to everybody's favorite Legionnaire, Monel, Explaining to Superboy that all of the women of the Legion of Superheroes have been afflicted by a strange crimson virus. And... and <laughs> Just buckle yourselves in, folks. There's going to be a lot of giggling. I I just wish this was like an episode of a 90s sitcom. (laughs) And the plot was just all about Superboy and Mon-El trying to figure out the Crimson Sickness. (laughs) The Lady Legionnaires are just trying to explain to them how their bodies work. No, what devilry is this? And sure enough, all of the female Legionnaires now have skin the color of rubies. Like, their entire bodies are just beet red. And we cut to 
the Legion of Substitute Heroes, where we see Polar Boy in Night Girl, complete with her old-fashioned beehive. <laughs> and they are figuring out what they can do to help, and Night Girl offers to take care of the sick Legionnaires. And then, because she is also a girl, she gets sick herself. My god, they're all syncing up. <laughs> god damn it, James. <laughs> so... All of the boys decide that because all the girls have gotten sick this week, they must all be quarantined off to quarantine world. Which marks the canonical first occasion of Superman exiling a woman into space for her own good. And Superboy and Mon-El get sent off to prevent two planets from colliding. And the rest of the Legionnaire boys are trying to find a cure for the Crimson Virus when, out of nowhere appears a woman in a purple jumpsuit with a maroon cape and a black ski mask. She looks like Space Ghost. Who introduces herself as Satan Girl. The greatest name in comic book history. Like, come on, if you're going to name yourself Satan Girl, your costume should reflect that. We're deep into the comics code era. Which is why I'm surprised they were even able to use the word Satan. I, by the way, I just imagine she flies down, Sunboy runs up to her, and it's like, <gasps> Are you the being known as Eutarus, the fiend who has bombarded our compatriots with your fallopian tubes? <laughs> Cure them of this crimson sickness! Which we find out that Satan Girl is the cause of the crimson virus, and it's because she wants to be the only girl legionnaire and she decides she's going to Quarantine World to kill the rest of the girl legionnaires. But first, Sunboy announces, don't let her get away! Grab her! And then they just kind of shuffle over to her like they're old men. <laughs> and as Saint Girl destroys the Legion spaceship and flies away, Supergirl shows up because the legionnaires have called her. And oddly enough, she is not affected by the Crimson Virus. So she heads off to Quarantine World and repaired their ship so that they could follow her. And we find out that Quarantine World is staffed with robots. The curative rays haven't yet had any effect on the crimson virus that you have contracted, but we'll try again. We robot nurses serve patients here because we can't catch any virus. And we know our profession. And that's when Satan Girl shows up and destroys the robot nurses and then bombards the other Legionnaire girls with a red ray to make the Crimson Virus even worse. Now with cramps. <laughs> and Supergirl, who is a bit of a late bloomer, shows up to stop her. And we find out that the Space Ghost mask is lead-lined, because of course it is. And she socks Supergirl which makes Supergirl realize that she must be from Krypton as well. And they fight for, like, seven panels, and it's amazing. It actually is a pretty good fight scene. And then as Supergirl is about to melt the mask off of her face, Satan Girl runs away. I just love how she says, it's okay, she's Kryptonian. She won't be hurt, she'll just have molten lead running down her face. So... Supergirl goes to meet a space doctor with weird hair. He's got some weird hair. He's got like an X-Men Evolution Logan thing going on. Where she finds out that green kryptonite dust cures certain space ills in ordinary people, 
So she decides to borrow some of it with a lead box. And I, I don't think this quite counts as surprise kryptonite this time. Uh, planned kryptonite? Yeah. So she takes the kryptonite to confront Satan Girl, and it has no effect whatsoever. So Supergirl decides that Satan Girl must be an android. <laughs> and Satan Girl runs away, and Supergirl decides she has to save the rest of the Legionnaires, and we get the story break, which has another Tootsie Roll ad. Another horrifyingly suggestive Tootsie Roll ad. Try a tongue teaser. Now, buy a tongue pleaser. <laughs> so, the second part of the story opens up with Supergirl visiting the rest of the Legionnaires on Quarantine World. Sunboy just runs up to her and is like, Supergirl, I don't know what to do. I keep asking them if there's anything wrong, and they keep saying that nothing is wrong, but in a tone that suggests that something actually is wrong. My future mind cannot solve these riddles. So if she decides to take the girls to a secret hiding place where Satan Girl cannot find them, which is a planet with intelligent alien animal bouncing balls. And Bouncing Boy cannot be happier. Right. He just joins in bouncing with all of these weird ball-shaped monsters. And this is why he's not invited to the Christmas parties. So, Supergirl creates a weapon that will temporarily paralyze any android, and that's when Satan Girl shows up at this place that she could not have known about. And Sunboy and Lightning Lad and Bouncing Boy try to stop her and fail. Sadly, bouncing in place does not defeat Satan Girl. And she continues to intensify the crimson virus in the girls. And Supergirl shoots the android gun at her, and it does nothing. There's just an amazing shot of her shooting Satan Girl in the chest. And just this cloud of smoke around her as she stands, arms akimbo. Ha ha ha! So you thought I'm an android? Supergirl, you'd be amazed if you knew who I really am. I'll tell you as I destroy you! That's when Sunboy decides that he has to leave, because these girls are just driving him nuts. <laughs> And all of the bouncing ball aliens attack Satan Girl to distract her, and Supergirl flies the other Legionnaires to yet another secret hiding spot that Satan Girl cannot know about. But we get a panel of Satan Girl going that she knows every secret in Supergirl's mind. Ha 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 ha. And then we get to a planet I would assume would be known to Satan Girl because it's hell. It is the Puppet Planetoid, and it's a playground for children of a futuristic race of supergiants. And they use the planet as a marionette backdrop, where they play with giant marionettes. <laughs> and then Satan Girl does, of course, show up at this secret place. And what does she have, James? No, no, no. Satanic Cryptonite! She ambushes Supergirl with Kryptonite and leaves her for dead and fights off the rest of the Legionnaires until they call for help from our favorite, the Legion of Super Pets. And then Comet the Super Horse, well, he just tramples the shit out of her. And can we talk about Streaky? Because the look of determination on that cat's face as he grabs her arm, like, yeah, come here a minute. It's horrifying. 
So the super pets are able to take down Satan Girl, and she finally gets unmasked as a red kryptonite duplicate of Supergirl. And we find out that the story is that she knows that she's going to fade into non-existence if she doesn't siphon off the red kryptonite energy in her body to other humans, which is what she has done to the female legionnaires. And she hasn't done enough, so she does disappear back into Supergirl's body. The last minutes are fading. My life is ending. It would have been wonderful to live my own life, but it's over. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. A flying monkey in a tiny red cape. A fat child bouncing through space as though he were made of rubber. All of that will be lost now, like tears in rain. Time to die. Satan girl away. I just want to make it very clear that the red kryptonite did not turn this other Supergirl evil. This is just what the actual Supergirl would have done if placed in this situation, and we should never, ever forget that. Like, Grant Morrison's Batman has his Zur-N-R personality for when things get bad. Supergirl, when the chips are down, becomes Satan Girl. And leaves an empty suit that is still shaped like a female body. It's creepy. And then they find a suit of lead armor that is painted so that the face looks like Satan Girl's face, and that's how she was able to not be affected by the green kryptonite. Sure, why not? Then we get yet another Tootsie Roll ad. Your eyes may play tricks, but not your taste. Which seems to reference the story we just read. That you may not be able to trust Supergirl anymore, but you can always trust the rock-solid taste of Tootsie Roll Pops. That brings us to our next story, which is The Maid of Doom. (laughs) From Action Comics number 306, and it was published November of 1963. Written by Dorfman, art by Mooney. And this story opens with a splash page of Superman banishing Kara to the Phantom Zone. And all I could think was, did Corey arrange this to be the Supergirl is evil episode? Because there's definitely a theme here. If you were building the case against Supergirl, it would be this episode of Supergirl Power Hour. You know, I didn't, but apparently that was just the theme in late 1963. (laughs) Like, listen, uh, Mooney, we're getting really sick of the Supergirl, so can you just make people hate her for a while and uh, we'll have her explode or something? So we open this story with Supergirl and Dick Malvern going to a horror movie, The Creature from the Black Galaxy, toted as the shocker of the year. And The Creature from the Black Galaxy is not scary in the least. <laughs> It is a, it kind of looks like a beholder from Dungeons and Dragons, only it has two stumpy legs. And a toupee. And a toupee. Like, and Supergirl pretends to be afraid of this creature because she can't let Dick suspect that she is actually Supergirl. (laughs) Dick can't know that I've used my supervision to see the zipper in the monster's back. And Dick comforts her, and then as they're driving home, he is the most chauvinistic we have ever seen him, in saying that girls shouldn't be allowed to see horror movies like that. It's too much for their nerves. You're so right, Dick. 
And a supergirl left tangled with monsters that would make that thousand-eyed creature look like a harmless pet! Kara, honey, you need to learn to count, because he had a lot of eyes, but he had nowhere near a thousand. <laughs> the movie reminded her that she had promised Superman to take three capsules to three hostile planets from the United Nations, containing films and tapes urging those warlike planets to live in peace with the people of Earth. First stop is the planet Mutor, which is a planet with a bunch of uh, giant colorful cockaburs laying around. She leaves the capsule there, and another capsule appears, which reminds her that the people that rule this planet are shapeshifters, and that's what happened there. Foreshadowing! Then she uh, goes to the home planet of the sandworms from Beetlejuice. <laughs> that's all they are, really. It's, it's kind of messed up. What I want to know is, what kind of war are they going to declare on Earth? Are they just going to lob the planet at us? And then she goes to an ice planet, and uh, everybody on that planet is radioactive. And then Supergirl returns to planet Earth, and there to greet her is her adorable pet cat, Streaky the Supercat. Who dies immediately. Spoilers, James! <laughs> Uh, as soon as Supergirl goes to pet Streaky, he does, in fact, collapse dead. And dead Streaky the Supercat is the saddest thing I've ever seen. Him just laying there limply, his last mouth still on his breath. As Supergirl cries tears, and before she is even done mourning Streaky, Crypto the Superdog comes up, and he looks happy because he had been playing with his friend Streaky. Sure, his... Friend, Streaky, right. And then as she goes to pet Crypto, she kills him as well. And Crypto the super dog, dead, is the saddest thing I've ever seen. His tongue is hanging out. Ugh, he was a good boy. So Supergirl uses her secret entrance back to the Danvers household, and she tells her mom that she mustn't come near her, but Edna doesn't listen and goes and hugs her daughter. And Edna does not die immediately, so Supergirl deduces that it must be only super beans that she affects. Ah, oh, this is just like that red kryptonite dream I had months ago. Quick, everyone pinch me! Oh no, my vulnerable skin broke their fingers! Ah! And then she gets approached by Mr. Mixia Spitlick. And she assumes that he is the reason all of this is happening, so she shakes the literal life out of him. And dead Mr. Mixia Spitlick is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Him just lying there with his big comedy nose up in the air, his mouth agape, just, ugh. Prank your way out of that one, Mixie. Supergirl is taken aback because she didn't mean to kill Mixie. So she summons Superman, but before Superman shows up, Comet shows up. And Comet's like, well, I'm not from the planet Krypton, so you won't kill me if you touch me. And... She trips and touches Comet, and Comet dies immediately. How ironic. I only wanted to help you. My best friend. What did I do to deserve this? Don't blame yourself, Superhorse. It was all my fault. I'll never forgive myself. Why, Supergirl? Why? 
And that's when Superman shows up and decides that, you know, until he can find some way to decontaminate her, he will banish her to the Phantom Zone like he did his good old pal Monel. And I should point out, Superman swears that he spotted this tragedy from a distant galaxy and rushed at super speed, but he is clearly jogging in that panel. <laughs> so Kara should know something's fishy right away. And we get an origin story for Monel. <laughs> Which is ironic considering the podcast I was just on to talk about the origin of Monel. <laughs> All one panel of it. And Superman activates the Phantom Zone Ray. Bye, Superman! Oh. She's vanishing into the Phantom Zone. My scheme worked. <laughs> and I have to say, if there's any panel that sums up the Silver Age, <laughs> it's that one. I just imagine some casual reader just flipping to that one panel and being like, yeah, I figured it would end that, that. And that's when we find out that Superman is actually a fish creature from the planet that has all the shape-shifting aliens. And I really, really, really wish that the issue ended on that panel. And then DC immediately went out of business and we never saw this universe again. <laughs> There, Superman was an evil Transformo fish all along. End of Silver Age. We find out that the reason they are doing this is that they don't want to be a peaceful race, so they are attacking Supergirl and the planet Earth. And we find out that the creature was, in fact, all of the dead animals and imps. And we've got some horrible panels in this story of just... Some John Carpenter's The Thing shit happening here. Like, at one point, the orange blob splits into Streaky and Crypto, and then they form back again into the tree stump. And then we get an amazing panel of the scene between Kara and her mom taking place with a thought bubble over the tree stump congratulating himself for his awesome plan. And the panel where Crypto and Streaky turn into the tree stump is like some horrific combination of the Nickelodeon cartoon Cat Dog <laughs> and the Ren and Stimpy short log. It is a 90s Nickelodeon horror story. Coming this season, Nickelodeon horror story. And then we get a panel of Comet turning into Superman. Oh, who's just vibrating again like John Carpenter's The Thing. And that is currently James's Skype profile picture, so everyone knows. I'm never changing it. You'll change it next month when you find some other horrifying panel in the next batch of issues we cover, James. That is true. Silver Age comic books have no end of disturbing body horror. So, fake Superman used the Phantom Zone projector, and now he's going to use it on Superman as well. But that's when Supergirl shows back up, because she didn't use the Phantom Zone projector, because she had figured out what was going on. Aha! And instead, she had gone back into the past instead of using that, because the thing that gave away all of the imposters is that none of them were flying, when she ran into them. Not even Superman. As James said, Superman was jogging to her <laughs> from a distant galaxy. I 
love how that is the most, like, old Superman thing in the world. Wait a second. Superman doesn't jog on the ground <laughs> over great distances. So she used a fake Phantom Zone projector, and she gets them to sign a peace treaty, and the United Nations hangs a Supergirl flag. Naming her a sovereign nation of Supergirlia. And then we get another Tootsie Roll ad. Because if there's one thing the Silver Age has, it's Tootsie Roll ads at the end of every story. And body horror. And that brings us to Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 73. The writer was eaten by fish. We do not know who it was. The penciler was John Forte, and the inker was George Klein. And the story is The Kid with the Golden Touch. Oh, God. We're going into Jimmy destroys everything territory again, aren't we? We are. We open with Jimmy sitting by himself at Lover's Lane. I got a strange hunch to drive down here to the pirate's nest. Something told me I'd find a big story here, but nothing's happened so far. I might as well eat my lunch. And that's when an alien spaceship lands in front of him. Holy cow, it's some kind of alien spaceship landing in the sea. My hunch paid off. What a nose for news. Oh, look, it's some aliens. Hey, aliens. Oh, no, I killed them all. Sadly, he doesn't kill them all. He meets the spacemen who claim that he is their greatest hero. Which Jimmy just believes, like... Gosh, you mean I got fans in outer space, too? Yes, Jimmy, you are the, you are more famous than Superman. People come from all across the multiverse to see your freckles and bow tie. <laughs> so, they pull out a glowing object, and Jimmy can't help himself but to touch the glowing space object. As they're screaming, no, do not touch it, Jimmy Olsen, because it's Jimmy Olsen. So they're like, well, now we have to figure out what it did to you. Go pick up that shell. And as he picks up a seashell, it turns into pure gold. Because the machine from outer space gave Jimmy the Midas touch. Oh, this is going to be bad. Then Jimmy goes to finish eating his sandwich, and it turns to gold. As usual, Jimmy's primary concern in moments of strife is his midday sandwich. And that's when the aliens give him special gloves that will prevent him from transmuting his golden touch. And then we get a panel of the most evil-looking Jimmy Olsen I have ever seen. What a shame. A scoop might help me get a raise. As if I need one. Ha <laughs> ha! I think I'll hit Perry for a raise anyhow. Just for laughs. So he drives back to the planet and demands a raise, at which point... Perry almost fires him for the gall of asking for more money. And Jimmy's like, well, I'll take anything. I'll even take your old ashtray. And as soon as he touches the ashtray, it turns to gold. Holy smoke, that ashtray turned to gold in his hand. Solid gold, chief. Just like your big, generous heart. You see, like King Mice, ancient mythology, I've acquired the golden touch. And then he plucks the cigar out of Perry's mouth turning it into a useless block of gold. Then Clark Kent walks in and is immediately outraged that Jimmy has a superpower he doesn't have. Jimmy won't tell him how he got the power, so Clark's like, well, I'm going to come back as Superman and maybe he'll tell me then. And he accidentally touches Clark's cape, turning it into solid gold. Which I'm sure Superman is thrilled about because it just makes him look more like a god. By the way, Jimmy's doing this while talking to Lucy on his solid gold phone that still works. Because Jimmy is just mad with power at this point. 
And he's talking about how he's going to give her a 24 karat golden sports car. But before that, he has to go meet his fan club. And he turns their clubhouse into solid gold. But as soon as Jimmy leaves... Oh no! Look at that gold-hungry mob tearing apart our clubhouse! And it's all Jimmy's fault! He started a modern gold rush! Which I say you deserve because you encouraged him. Right? He thinks aliens visit Earth to see him. So, Jimmy shows up at the airport because Lucy was a stewardess, and she gets immediately peeved that he didn't show up with her golden sports car. (laughs) And he's like, well, uh, I didn't know what model you wanted, but look at what happens when I touch this plane. And that's just the beginning, honey. And sure enough, the plane is solid gold, down to the wheels. And this angers the pilots because a solid gold plane can't fly. (laughs) So now the VIP diplomats who were supposed to be the passengers on that plane will be late for a big conference. And they threaten Lucy with termination if Jimmy ever shows his face at the airport ever, ever again. I don't think these are diplomats. Judging from how they're dressed, I think they're all going to a top hat convention. (laughs) But nearly getting his girlfriend fired does not phase Jimmy. This amazing gift is too good to be true. I'd better use it while it lasts. I could be the richest man in the world. So he sees an unattended wheelbarrow full of bricks and decides he will turn all the bricks into solid gold bricks and then wheel off the wheelbarrow, at which point he gets arrested by a police officer because a gold shipment was robbed last week. I love the solitary cop wandering around the uninhabited desert that apparently surrounds Metropolis, just (laughs) looking for a ginger to club to death. So Jimmy touches the cop's handcuffs, the badge on his hat, the badge on his shirt, and his baton to turn all of them into solid gold, which delights the police officer. (laughs) And he just lets him go. That's bribery, Jimmy. And he's like, you know what? I'll wheel your gold bricks for you because it's dangerous, Olsen. (laughs) They'll be safe in police headquarters. Safer than they will be in a bank. I I don't think that's true, officer. I think they'd be mighty fine safe in a bank where, you know, they have spots to hold that stuff. No, no, no. Jimmy White over here does not need more funds for his nefarious operations. So then Jimmy gets contacted by his alien fan club, and there is a terrible plant scourge destroying their planet. And they tell him that if he can bring them white kryptonite, it will destroy the plant life that is destroying their planet. So sure enough, Jimmy brings them a piece of white kryptonite, and uh, then they ask him to summon Supergirl, which is finally where she comes into this story. And one of the aliens takes off his glove and turns the white kryptonite into gold, which, okay, I, I am going to be very nitpicky right here. Nitpick away, Corey. We've established that this Midas touch turns things into actual gold, correct? Correct. So touching the white kryptonite would turn it from white kryptonite into gold, not gold kryptonite. The assumption seems to be that it's the radiation 
that is the constant, but that means that the differences between the kryptonites aren't what kind of radiation they send out, but their actual mineral composition and color, which makes less sense than it's just gold kryptonite. <laughs> like, it actually gets dumber the more you try to explain it. Right, so they turn this white kryptonite into theoretically gold kryptonite, and it theoretically takes away Supergirl's powers, and we find out that the aliens were actually Supergirl's old nemesis, Vostar, the criminal scientist from Atlantis from Action Comics number 302. Here's a question, though. Correct me if I'm wrong, Corey. Isn't Vostar a merman? He is. He is from Atlantis. So where did he get his land legs? Or is that some uh, kind of optical illusion? I don't know. Do Wait, do we ever see the alien's legs? I'm going back and checking. <laughs> yes! Okay, then I have no idea, James. Like, do, they, do they split in two? Did he mutilate himself for this prank? Because <laughs> Vostar, no, that is not how you will win the heart of Lex Luthor. Also, I just want to point out, this means that a key part of their plan was that they would present Jimmy with something dangerous that he's not supposed to touch, and he would immediately touch it because he's Jimmy. They know this comic far too well. <laughs> Jimmy is upset because he's been played for a sucker, and suddenly Supergirl and Superman are flying side by side, and Superman still has the solid gold cape. <laughs> I like to think he wears it for training purposes, like uh, Piccolo's turban. So we find out that Superman had used his telescopic vision to figure out how Jimmy got his golden touch. Because Superman is God. And that's how he figured out that it was Vostar and some other Atlantean creature thing. He looks like Pepe the Frog. I think it's Pepe the Frog. It's Pepe the Frog. He also used his super hearing to find out exactly what Vostar had planned. So Superman switched out a the chunk of white kryptonite for a simple white chunk of stone. So wait, 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 wait. Does that mean that what we said about how kryptonite should log logically work is true and Superman is just a dumbass? <laughs> I, I don't know, James. I don't know. Why are you still wearing the gold cape? Why, why does it billow like cloth? What the hell is even going on in this comic? And then the very last panel of the strip has Superman's cape turning back to red cloth. Thank because God. Jimmy's golden touch was temporary, so all the people that destroyed Jimmy's clubhouse <laughs> now have worthless pieces of wood. And the club is still without a clubhouse, so it's not a happy ending. Right. <laughs> and the plane is back to normal, and Lucy's sports car is back to normal, and somewhere in Perry White's office, <laughs> the cigar has turned back to a regular cigar and set the entire Daily Planet building on fire. <laughs> now, before we leave this story, there's something I realized upon reading this. Now, Corey, this marks our 15th episode of The Supergirl Power Hour. And in over a year's time, we've studied the behavior and patterns of Kryptonians in some detail. Now, in that time, I think that you and I have stumbled onto the true secret of defeating Supergirl and Superman. And it's not Kryptonite. It's their one true weakness. And that is, the only move in their playbook is pretending to have been tricked by a villainous plot until said villain leaves. 
Like, Superman's number one tactic is playing possum. Like, they have the same signature move as Lord Deathman from the Batman manga. And That's... I, I have a theory on this. I think Superman can't fight. <laughs> like, I think Superman, like, has the same combat skills that I do. So <laughs> his number one strategy is to just hide under a rock and pretend to be dead. All right. So that brings us to Action Comics number 307, December of 1963, written by Leo Dorfman, art by Jim Mooney. And the title is Supergirl's Wedding Day. And this issue opens with an anniversary celebration of the founding of Midvale, which is being led by our old friend, Mayor Cobblepot. It is him. Supergirl. So as they are celebrating, we see the Phantom Zone criminals, including Jaxer of Krypton. He? Who are plotting to create a huge cosmic fireball. And the way they accomplish this is by whispering into the mayor's ear that he should make Supergirl build a giant cosmic fireball. And Supergirl's like, that sounds fun. (laughs) I have to say, the Phantom Zone on paper sounds like a really bad punishment. But considering you get to haunt the Earth and whisper sweet nothings into the ears of top-hatted mayors... I actually think they're living it up. And that's when we get a new Phantom Zone criminal, Toran, who is the most egotistical of the Phantom Zone criminals, which is saying a lot. Well, all he does is say he's the most handsome of them, which is true. So he used the cosmic fireball to open a small hole in the Phantom Zone through which only he could escape. He flies to the fortress, he destroys all the Superman robots, and the Phantom Zone projector gets destroyed so that he can't free his buddies, but he doesn't care because he's out, so what does he care about those losers that are left in there? He uses the destroyed pieces of the Superman robot to create a doomsday device, which he uses to blackmail the bottled city of Kandor into helping him assume the identity of a mild-mannered science teacher at Midvale High. <gasps> and over the coming weeks, he begins to creepily seduce her. Because nothing says creepy pedophile teacher like a thousand-year-old Phantom Zone criminal masquerading as a 20-something high school teacher wooing a 16-year-old girl. So, Toran convinces Linda to stay after school with him, and immediately explodes the chemicals on his science desk and blows them out using his super breath, (laughs) after which he dramatically rips open his shirt, revealing that he, too, is a Kryptonian! But it's not that dramatic because he has no logo on his chest. I know, it's just a black bodysuit with a little orange stripe, so it's like, oh god, he's wearing clothes, he must be from Krypton. And he tells Linda his history, which is that he is also from Argo City, and that his dad also built a shoddy rocket, (laughs) and then drugged him to send him away. And his rocket went to a different planet with a yellow sun, where they had no crime, so he couldn't use his powers for good. What a horrible paradise. So he decided that that was too good for him, and he flew to Earth, where he could become a superhero. And he transmits an image of Allura into Supergirl's mind, and it causes her to faint. Even though she's seen her dead mother many times and has a living robot of her she can visit anytime she wants. 
And then Toran kisses Supergirl back to consciousness. And that's when she introduces him to her new parents. And he immediately tells them that he is Kryptonian by drying their dishes with his heat vision. And then we get the, the creepiest editorial note. Though much older than Supergirl, Toran doesn't show it since no one ages while in the Phantom Zone. Thank you, comic books. Uh, that that really made things better. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Kryptonian criminals are just watching and just elbowing each other like, oh, Toran's gonna get some. Then, uh, he develops a serum to take 20 years off of Edna and Fred's ages, which I'm thinking they're probably in their late 20s to begin with, maybe early 30s. Yeah, they do not look that old. <laughs> Taking 20 years off would make them look like teenagers. Well, like, they do look like teenagers. They look younger than Linda whenever they transform. Toran proposes to Supergirl, and the Danverses are happy because they think he'll be a perfect son-in-law. And then we get a panel where Supergirl laments how long it has been since she has kissed Toran. Oh, I know the feeling. Which is exactly four hours, 32 minutes, and 12 seconds. Like, she is counting the seconds. And as she is daydreaming about her new boyfriend, she accidentally takes the submarine that she is helping out further down than she was supposed to, and it starts to get destroyed. Toran's dreaminess nearly killed a crew. Jero saves them, and then she accuses him of being jealous because he doesn't like Toran. He senses something weird about him. And then Supergirl spends some time with her horse, who she accuses of being jealous. Because he also doesn't like Toran and tells her to delay the wedding until Superman gets there, which, to be fair... This is your only living relative. You should probably wait to get married until he shows up. Or at least wait a week. How about that, Supergirl? You wait a week between the engagement and the wedding. A week. And that's when Superman shows up. But we find out that it's actually one of Superman's robots. No, no wonder he's jogging. (laughs) And Superman offers the Fortress of Solitude as the wedding venue. And we get a thought bubble from Toran where he has bribed the elder of Kandor to perform the wedding or he will destroy the city. I just love how he needed a doomsday bomb for that because he could have just knocked it off the shelf it's precariously placed on. I don't think Superman reinforced that glass. Then we go to the fortress where Supergirl is getting married in her super costume, except with a veil. Not even like a super veil or anything. I mean, it has stars on it, but uh, I, I was expecting a little more oomph from you. And rather than, you know, bring the pastor out of the bottled city, he does it remotely from inside the bottle. And as he tells Toran that he may kiss the bride. Kiss you, Supergirl? Never. I hate you and everything you stand for. I'm the worst criminal who ever escaped from the Phantom Zone. I married you out of hatred and revenge. Which doesn't make sense because you didn't actually marry her yet because the wedding is complete when you kiss the bride. Also, uh, Toran, I, she is pretty cute. You could get one kiss in before you cable flipped. And he's like, as the wife of a criminal, you'll be disgraced forever. And since Kryptonian law forbids divorce, your cousin Superman will always be related to a supervillain. Ha 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 ha. Now, let's put a pin in that for a second, because I don't want us to move past this. (laughs) 
There's nothing else to this plot. That's where it ends. His master scheme was to marry Supergirl. To embarrass her! <laughs> but he's the smartest villain ever in the Phantom Zone. What a bizarre yet arch-as-hell revenge scheme. I, I have to admit, I kind of respect the pettiness of it. And that's when Supergirl takes off her veil and her wig to reveal her luscious blonde locks as Saturn Girl. Like, there is no change in her hairstyle. <laughs> Why did she need a wig? It's like pulling off sunglasses to reveal another pair of sunglasses. Like, I would have loved for her to take the wig off and him to say, oh no, it's Saturn Girl. I'd recognize that shade of blonde anywhere. And she immediately changes into her Saturn Girl costume as well, like, in a half a second flat. And then Toran starts vanishing back into the Phantom Zone. And Saturn Girl explains what happened. Yeah, it seems that Jero and the horse use their combined uh, mermaid and horse telepathy to reach into the future to contact Saturn Girl, who returned to the past and used her far more advanced telepathy to find out uh, about Toran's shenanigans. And then told Supergirl, and because Supergirl didn't assume that Saturn Girl was just jealous, because Saturn Girl's not a sapphic... <laughs> She believed her and allowed Saturn Girl to dupe Toran. Because, once again, all this family can do is play possum. So they return Toran to the Phantom Zone, and Supergirl pines over the fact that she has no boyfriend, except that she does. She has Jero the Merman, and Dick Malvern, and Byron the Centaur. And Brainiac. Like, Supergirl, you're a player. And the issue ends with a advertisement... For the Supermen of America. For a whopping 10 cents, you will get a membership certificate, a button, and a Superman code so that you can translate the secret message on this very advertisement. Every issue's message is no. Also, before we leave, I just want to explore a little theory I've had since reading this issue. What if season finale of Supergirl, it's revealed, Monel is actually Toran. How much sense does that make? Oh, God, that would make me so happy. <laughs> he just rips off his mask to reveal an identical face underneath. <laughs> uh, uh, I've been gaslighting you all this time, Supergirl. No one is this boring by accident. Which brings us to our last story, which is Action Comics number 308 from January of 1964, written by Dorfman, art by Mooney, and the story is the super tot from nowhere. And we open with a girl falling from the sky, like a little wee tot just falling from the middle of nowhere. Supergirl saves her, and rather than trying to find her mom, she just kind of adopts this little girl. Meanwhile, in racism, a tribe of wherever the hell we are, is planning to go to war because the ruby eye on their sacred totem has been removed. Yeah, yeah. So having a deep respect for their culture, Supergirl hastily crafts another ruby and slings it at the totem. This does prevent them from going to war because all of a sudden their god can see again. And Candy, the little girl, sees the giant totem and thinks it's a big dolly. 
and goes and lifts it up. And these a-ethnic tribesmen are terrified by the antics of Super Candy Baby Girl, so they immediately begin launching arrows at her. Well, no, they don't start launching arrows until she tries to take the eye out again. <laughs> like, no, we just got this! And Supergirl takes her back to Midvale, and as the little girl is riding on Supergirl's back, She's like, you give me a horsey ride just like my mommy. I'll call you mommy, too. Well, this is how it works in the 60s. I guess I'm supporting you now. And so she takes her back to the Danvers' house and tucks her in to the guest bedroom as she puts on her Linda wig because she has to sleep in her Linda wig. <laughs> like, I know we've covered this before, but it's still just weird. It makes me feel secure. Candy wakes up earlier than Linda and goes off to find food. So the first thing she does is she breaks open the cookie jar with her heat vision. Because lifting up the lid would be bad. And then she goes for some milk and rips the door off of the refrigerator. Uh-oh, me pulled too hard. Me sorry. And that's when the Danvers wake up and... How confused must they be at this moment? This small, red-haired child with superhuman strength ripping open the refrigerator. I'm sure their first thought was, oh, God, what has Jimmy done now? <laughs> and that's when Linda tells them what happened. And the Danvers are like, you know, we will be thrilled to have her in our house until we find her parents. And as Linda leaves for school, she gives little Candy a toy train. <laughs> And as soon as she's out the door, Super Candy Baby Girl uses her supervision to spot an actual train, which she immediately flies towards and begins disassembling, horrifying a hobo who may or may not be Harvey Bullock. <laughs> like, horrifying him so much that he throws away his booze. I'm going back to Gotham. Dude, you live in the DC Universe. This can't be the first time you've seen something crazy. A person with superpowers? Now I've seen everything. Oh, look, Darkseid's in Maiden again. He's always looking for the anti-life equation. Supergirl ducks out of school to rescue the train. You little minx, you're a mess. Come home and take off that ruined dress at once. Oh, I'll put that engine together later. Being a foster mother is certainly a hectic job. <sighs> so she takes Candy back to her parents, where Edna has spent the day sewing a new dress for Candy, and... Candy is an ungrateful little brat <laughs> who only wants to wear a super dress like her mommy. So Supergirl uses one of the outfits from her discarded Supergirl robots to make Super Candy Baby Girl a proper Super Candy Baby Girl outfit. Me look just like mommy. That's when Dick Malvern shows up, and rather than knocking on the door, he just barges in because it was open a crack. Okay, Corey, is it just me, or is Dick Malvern uh, the annoying friend from every 90s sitcom? Yeah, yeah. Like, I expect a guitar rift every time he walks in. <laughs> Dick, go home. And so Linda is thinking to herself how he, she can explain Candy's super clothes without making him suspicious when Candy reaches into the fire and pulls out a hot burning coal. Well, now I have to kill Dick, finally. And Linda explains it's just a piece of red quartz as she handles it as well. And Dick's like, no, give it to me, because if it's red quartz, I can touch it, too. So with super speed, she switches it out with a piece of red kryptonite. Which she has just sitting on a box on her fireplace. 
but it's fine because that piece of red kryptonite has already affected her, so it won't actually affect her again. That's how red kryptonite works, that it can only affect her one time. Still, she's just asking for a Supergirl story to happen. Which it does. Oh! It might not be able to affect her, Superman, or Crypto, but it affects Candy. And it so happens that this piece of red kryptonite turned the toddler invisible. And Super Candy Baby Girl just rains terror on Midvale. Can we talk about the candy-shaped hole in the Danvers' wall? (laughs) It's horrifying. Like, how are you going to explain that to Dick Malvern, Supergirl? Uh, We are talking like a full-on Roger Rabbit hole (laughs) of her leaping toward a cookie, I guess. And so she goes and steals some little kid's tricycle. (laughs) And oh my god, we get a panel of her riding the tricycle at such blazing speed that a policeman thinks that it is one of them fancy small foreign sports cars. She then chases after her and realizes that it's a driverless tricycle. I swear to God, when I catch up with that tricycle, I'm going to beat the shit out of it. So then she apparently takes the tricycle back, but then goes to the candy store where the store owner is handing out free samples of bubblegum, where the children blowing bubbles will get a prize for the biggest one. And Candy uses her super breath to blow a bubble multiple times the size of her head. It's the size of a galdang beach ball. It's roughly the size of a Legion of Superheroes time bubble. (laughs) And then it pops, which scares her, and she starts bawling, which terrifies not only all of the small children, but the candy store owner. And they all run off. And that's when she starts rematerializing because the red kryptonite wore off. And so Supergirl decides that, well, since she must be Kryptonian, she'll take her to Kandor to see if they know who she might be. Thankfully, the entire city of Kandor has been creepily watching her on their Supergirl peeper screens. So they're fully uh, prepared to scan and analyze her. We also find out that she has a crescent-shaped birthmark on her neck which has not shown up anywhere until now. And then they use their predictograph to look at what she will look like in the future. And they're like, well, that might be what her mom looks like, but no Kryptonian looks like that. So they take her to the Kandorian orphanage. And history tragically repeats itself. I'm sorry, Super Candy Baby Girl. I'll need you here until you can be my secret weapon. Except that Supergirl actually has a heart (laughs) and can't bring herself to leave Candy in the super orphanage. So she decides to just adopt the girl. But first, she'll take her back to the jungle to see if they can actually find her mom. Yeah, you might want to do that first. Also, on doing this, they leave the Fortress of Solitude, which, as we realized earlier in the episode, contains Superman's everything machine. So you really take going the long way around on this, Kara. So they come across a firecracker, as Candy calls it, that contains food and goodies. And so she opens it, and there is Kryptonian food inside it. Which was apparently discharged from Supergirl's rocket as she pulled the wrong lever while speeding to Earth. 
I'm glad she, she didn't have any weapons armed on that thing. Right? So we get the story that Candy stumbled upon the cylinder of Kryptonian food, which gave her temporary Kryptonian superpowers, because that's all it takes, is eating Kryptonian food. Wait a second. That's not how fake works. <laughs> and Supergirl scans the jungle with her telescopic and x-ray vision, and she sees the spitting image of adult Candy. And, and wouldn't you know it, Super Candy Baby Girl is actually the lost daughter of an explorer couple that is on safari in the middle of this ill-defined jungle. So Supergirl returns her to her parents, and Candy trips over a rock and has lost her powers. Oof, me hurt toe. Then uh, Supergirl says goodbye, and Candy isn't even sad because she found her real mommy. Goodbye, me miss you too. But me have my real mommy now. And as Supergirl flies away, Candy tries to fly and falls flat on her face. Because Supergirl feels no need to tell them about any of this and just makes up a story about why she has the costume. Because <laughs> at this point, Superman has taught her that when in doubt, lie. And then instead of a Tootsie Roll ad to close out the issue, we get a giant Batman Daniel ad. Featuring Gase of the Gotham City Safari, Creature from the Green Lagoon, The Danger Club, and Mystery of the Four Batmen. And, uh, uh so... Before we leave, I have yes. a theory. Oh, God. You know, given the evidence placed here, the only conclusion I can arrive at is that Super Candy Baby Girl's parents are the ones who stole the ruby from that totem. Because why else would they be there? You know, I don't think you're wrong. I think Supergirl just gave that little girl back to supervillain parents. We're just out plundering the jungle for fun and profit. Which brings us to the super female section of the show, and we actually have two pieces of female this month. One is our standard piece of old school mail, and one is a piece of actual fan mail that we received as a show. So, Oh, we're moving up in the world. Uh, which do we want to start with, James? You know, I always need to start with more. All right, so, dear editor, Supergirl is one of your greatest characters, but there is one thing your Supergirls don't have enough of, and that is kissing. Kissing is getting so rare in your magazines lately that you must think it's a crime. And on those few occasions where you do show Supergirl kissing, she's usually either kissing her foster parents or one of her pets. Supergirl is over 18 years old, and kissing should be more common at that age rather than rare. Sincerely, Michael Stock, Buffalo, New York. Uh, sorry, but uh, Supergirl is an old-fashioned girl and is a conservative in the <laughs> smooching department. Unless you know, she feels honest, sincere affection for the lucky lad who would uh, seek her lips. In other words, she does not bestow her kisses lightly. As a case in point, we ask you, too, to refer to the story in this issue. It demonstrates that Supergirl has the same emotions as any normal American girl when she thinks she is in love with her ideal. I would like to point out to Michael, 50 years later, that Supergirl was actually only 16 at this point in time. Ah, age is just a number, except when the cops are concerned. And then our piece of actual fan mail comes from listener Mary, 
I'm a big fan of the Supergirl Power Hour. I look forward to it every month. Sorry, just wanted to fangirl out for a second. It's so hard to get personal on these. Haha. I feel the postal workers read them anyway. Big fan, Mary. And, uh, I'd like to give Mary our sincere thanks. I... I didn't know anyone was listening to this. I didn't know anyone cared about old Mortonous Supermans. You tell what's a face. The she's always got a place in old Morty's heart. You tell her that. If she ever needs money or a place to stay, I, I I'm, I'm here. She ever gets into any trouble with the law, I know a guy. You tell her that. Okay, Mort. I bless you, Kathy. Uh, all right. Well, and that is our show for this month. Uh, we will be back next month with hopefully a very special episode. Fingers crossed. Tapes crossed. And uh, over the summer, we have something very special planned. But we will come to that bridge when we come to that bridge. And uh, so in the meantime, fans, stay mighty. And you can check me out on several other Pulp Podcast Network shows, such as Graphic Novelism, where me and some friends discuss the culture and history of the comic book medium. And I do several funny voices. You can check me out on Box Office Pulp, a movie review and analysis show. And you can check out Corey on The Things She's On. Which are Women Write About Comics on Twitter at CoreyMarie21, where I rant and rave about various things, mostly superhero-related, and on Tumblr at FYASupergirl. Um, and you can also hear me on one of the most recent episodes of Supergirl Radio, where we did a character spotlight on Monel, where I dove into his Silver Age history, including... His start as Bob Cobb traveling shoebrush salesman. But yeah, you can check out Corey's stuff. Check me out at Graphic Novelism and at Box Office Pulp. And check out all these shows at pulppodcastnetwork.wordpress.com. And uh, we are still looking for the first entry in our <laughs> Give Kara a Modern Hairdo contest. So. At this point, I'm just going to draw something myself and send it to you. So I'm not going to lie. kind of want that. Shh. <laughs> They don't know what the prize is. <laughs> I'll bleep it. <laughs> okay. Until next time. Superman, no! That sounded painful. This has been a Pulp Podcast production. There are a lot of issues that plague the <laughs> Greetings and salutations, kiddos. It's me, your old goblin in crime, Roderick Kingsley. Here with a special message for you, my adoring public. You may have noticed lately in my many, many appearances that I've had a bit of a spring in my pointy-booted step. No, boys and girls, the secret to my success is no wonder drug or miracle diet, but an elixir of the spirit. And, like a Halloween-themed Jehovah's Witness, I'm here to spread the good news like a bombardment of pumpkin bombs. The good news of graphic novelism. 
But, Uncle Hobgoblin, you ask, what is a graphic novelism? Don't ignore me, you little shit! But yes, the tenets of graphic novelism are quite simple. A love for the comic book form in all of its forms. A rejection of the complacency that keeps it from reaching further heights. And, most importantly, a refusal to fall into the dark pool of negativity that has strangled the life out of this culture for too long. Since becoming a devout graphic novelist, I've rebuilt my goblin game from the ground up, soaring high above my fears and insecurities, as though they were the skyline of New York City. And all you have to do to walk this path is look deep within yourself and send your credit card number care of Ronnie the OG Hobby at gobmail.com. Or if you want to be a total Norman about it, just listen to the Graphic Novelism Podcast, where Alex Cook, James Lewis, and Mike Nate Nate Napier preach their love for the medium and warn against those that may do it harm. Remember, ladies and gents, if you want to be the hobgoblin of whatever it is that you do, listen to Graphic Novelism. Subscribe to it on iTunes and The Stitcher. Leave a rating and a comment. Give Hobgoblin all of your money. And for God's sake, kill Spider-Man! Another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. <laughs>